Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 362 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is February, excuse me, it's March 16th, 2015. February is long gone. We're always halfway to April already, but uh, March 16th, 2015, we've got a big show. We want to talk about USC being on spring break, finishing up the first two weeks of spring football and a full pad scrimmage in the Coliseum. And we got Coach Harvey Hyde on secret assignment this week, and we're going to do a full show with uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. A lot of questions to get to. We want to get Dan's insights on everything that's been going on the first couple of weeks of spring football. We do want to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, as always, just drop us an email. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address, or you give us a call at 206-888-6755. Or you can go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Leave a voicemail just by clicking on the left side of the page. You can do it right from your computer. So lots of ways to get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you. Try to keep those voicemails short so we can play them on the air. We'll have one of those for you today as well. And without further ado, I wanted to bring in Coach Harvey. Excuse me. Not Coach Harvey. I, it's, I don't know. Dan, I'm coming off uh, a little vacation. Went to spring training in Arizona. I'm a little off today. But welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. And you're probably uh, celebrating uh, St. Patrick's Day Eve, also. So what the heck, you know? I think I celebrate a little ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is St. Patrick's Day tomorrow. Um, But wanted to get some thoughts from you to start with on uh, this Coliseum scrimmage, and you know, we got to talk off air a little bit, and I got to read your reports and 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 check out the uh, you know the videos and stuff from the from the practice, but. Uh, it's, I guess it's a little different, you know, being the sixth practice, and, and it's kind of like this bridge for Steve Sarkeesian to go from spring practice part one, where they do two weeks, and then they take a week off, ten days off, and then go into spring practice part two. It's kind of an interesting concept that, that they've been using lately the last couple of years. Yeah, and I, I agree with Steve said that, you know, he loves it. It, it really gives you two different spring practices, and uh, I think he's correct. Uh, <clears throat> so... Uh, I mean, it's amazing. They've got, you know, a week off to kind of recharge their batteries and then three weeks to finish. And I was thinking, uh, I think on the Pac-12 network uh, over the weekend, uh, Colorado was already playing their spring spring game. Wow. So, uh, you know, I think this this is, it, it's a it's good planning, good schedule, good idea. Uh, and um, I think what we saw Saturday was more, uh, not so much that kind of a, first team, first team scrimmage, uh, but a chance for guys who they really wanted to see, wanted to really evaluate, see how they fit in, where they're going to be. You know, guys like uh, like Lamont Simmons, cornerback, uh, 6'2", you know, 185, uh, rangy, uh, got more you know chance to play with the first team. Uh, and uh, they didn't feel like I think they needed to play Adoree and Sua all that much. And... Uh, uh, you know, Stephen Mitchell, for example, really gets a chance to to shine, and Darius Rogers at wide receiver, uh, Soma Vanuku gets a chance to, you know, to carry the ball, and uh, that was kind of a good thing. I think it really helps the coaches now take the, you know, eight or nine days uh, between practices to to say, you know, how do we factor all this in? Where do these guys? go you know you look at a Cameron Smith and they say wow you know this kid and then it tells you something probably how difficult it is to do rankings of high school players because you know obviously nobody knew more about Cameron Smith than USC I mean they were recruiting him they liked him he's coached in high school at Granite Bay by Dallas Sarts you've got everything you could possibly think you could know they get him here and they say wow He's way more athletic than we realize. Wow, he can rush the quarterback. You know, he can drop. He's getting these great drops and on the interceptions. And uh, I, I think, you know, who would have known more about Cameron than the USC coaches? And yet, 
they feel like now that they're watching him practice, they're thinking, whoa, he's more than we, uh, we bargained for. We didn't realize he could do this and he could do this the way he's doing it. So, uh, uh, I guess, you know, and a, and a big part of what we do at, you know, we do at Scout is evaluate kids, but I think it makes the point how hard that is. And that's a really challenging, uh, thing to do. And now you get them here and, and you see things you said, wow, didn't see that. And, uh, that's been a, a kind of a blessing, I think, for USC, uh, to see, you know, guys like Cameron and Lamont and, and for the coaches, uh, Lamar Dawson is kind of a new guy. And they're really, I think, amazed at the things they're seeing him do, running plays down from behind, you know, grabbing guys. You know, when he gets his hand on you, you're down. You're not going anywhere, He's, you know. Uh, they didn't ever get to see Lamar do that. And now now they're getting, getting you know, to see, uh, see that from him. So I think those are the things that, you know, that, that really – jumped out at you the first couple of weeks uh and we'll see how that changes what what they're going to do uh but you know going forward you know, it's, it's interesting that i was reading what you were writing about cameron smith and of course what you're just saying and of the four linebackers coming in uh he was the early enrollee guy but wasn't as you know he wasn't the late signing he was the guy that's been committed for a long time and i guess sometimes in the fans eyes could be a little bit of an afterthought uh, you know, with John Houston or Osa Messina or Porter Gustin. And, I, you know, I think I think the fans will love that, seeing him coming in and being able to contribute uh, right away, especially because we still haven't seen him. I mean, he's a, he's a guy, when we would see him, Dan, at, at different camps, he's out there as a middle linebacker covering running backs and stuff. They're not in pads. That really wasn't the strength of his game when he was in high school. Now you get to see him actually with pads on and doing some things and not just being like a run-stopper kind of guy, but actually making – plays in space, uh, which is something I know he worked on you know, his senior year in high school. I, I think it's a really nice thing to, to see. But he was kind of the afterthought guy of those four uh, linebackers coming in. Although I will say this, the USC coaches kept saying, no, 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 he, he's going to be absolutely our guy in there. He's the one we think we know that much about, where he belongs. And uh, I just don't know that they realized he had the kind of range and the kind of judgment that – you know, you look out there, and there he is in the right place, you know, or he's the one making the break on the ball. You think, wow, you know, this kid still should be in high school. And he looks like, I mean, you know, I, I would say the closest I can come to, he reminds me of Ray Nifty. I mean, he just oh. looks like that kind of guy. You know, he's the same size. He kind of lumbers, you know, that kind of a, you know, an old throw, you know, a throwback NFL linebacker. And uh, I think that the nice thing about that is, it will give you more flexibility with the guys coming in. If you've got pretty much, uh, <clears throat> you know, that taken care of. I mean, here, here they are in a situation where Anthony Sorrell now, you know, on a motorized wheelchair with, uh, you know, operation on his foot. So here's your, your one starting, you know, one linebacker is, you know, Hayes Fillard is gone, and the other one is, you know, on a, after surgery. And they feel like, you know, they're upgraded there right now. That's a that's a real plus for this spring. Uh, if you just said one position, you know, inside linebackers, you feel like you're already upgraded, and you know you've got other help coming in. But um, but but I think that was one of the that's been one of the real positive developments, uh, you know, for this spring already in the first six practices. Yeah, so six practices down, got nine more to go, but the ten days off here. Um, I guess maybe your impressions, Dan, from the you know, the first couple of weeks, anything that, that really, you know, stood out to you? I mean, there's a you know, bunch of guys that, that need replace, you know, that need to be replaced, and we're kind of seeing some of the younger guys emerge. But any, any big storyline stick out for you the first couple of weeks? I think Stephen Mitchell's ability to be a home run hitter. I just think uh, <clears throat> he may have, uh, you know, slightly more uh, ability to make a cut and take it all the way than anybody we've seen. Other than, you know, say in the last five years, other than maybe uh, a completely healthy uh, Marquise, uh, he just has that ability. And I think they've really <clears throat> figured out some combination things to do with, um, with him and, uh, and Juju on the same side of the ball. And I think they'll do the same thing with Adori and Juju and really force teams into mismatches. Uh, but I think that the thing you like now is if they get a mismatch, a linebacker on, say, Steven, 
or um, let's say just say a linebacker on Steven and the guy you know can't stay with him and the safety comes up and takes the wrong angle on a slant let's say uh, Steven will try to take it to the end zone just right now and I don't know that we've we've exactly seen seen that kind of ability to stop start on a dime. I mean, he's got some of those, you know, characteristics that you always loved about, you know, some of the, the great classic USC teams that had guys that could do that, stop starting, take it to the end zone. And that's a, that's a big equalizer, having that, that home run hitter. So I think we're, you know, I think we are seeing, you know, some of that. Um, I think we're seeing uh, how difficult it is uh, to figure out how do you cover, uh, you know, Juju and Adori, let's say, on the same side. Uh, Juju and Steven, and you have to basically single up on Juju. If you do that, he's just bigger and stronger and more athletic. And if you come up and really try to take something away from him, he can beat you deep. So uh, I think they're they're starting to say, okay, we can do this or we can do that, and they can see it, you know, quickly when they line up. Uh, on the other side, we're seeing Kevon. Seymour, for example, I think understands he's really got to develop that shutdown corner ability if he wants to go on and play at the next level the way he does. And uh, and we're seeing that. Uh, we're seeing things that we haven't, you know, seen from Kevon. He's healthy. He's confident. Um, uh, I mean, he's just not letting people catch the ball in front of him. Uh, and I think the mix and match that they're doing where there's not a big difference between the safeties and the and the corners and how they're playing, uh, and how they're you know they don't need a big size difference and uh, they've got guys that are mostly strong enough to play uh, safety, and and a lot of these teams that USC is going to be playing, you better be able to defend four guys man to man, and uh, I think they're 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 making the move to be able to do that because as, as Sark said. You can't just defend, you know, man-to-man, you know, in a couple of places. You better be ready to defend, you know, man-to-man all over the field if you're going to play that way. They want to play that way. They're trying to figure out, you know, do we have the personnel? Last year, I think they were really afraid they didn't. Uh, I think they may have underrated it and maybe just under-taught it, under-coached it. But, uh, you know, they're really seriously, you know, going out and saying, we got to be able to take things away from people. Last year, I don't think on defense they took things away from people enough. So, uh, so those are a couple of the storylines. I think the offensive line, we've seen a little bit more attempt to really do some power running uh, with Soma as the, uh, the big back with Trey Madden not, not able to, to be there. And I do think, uh, you know, that ability to just wedge it out. And, you know, I think the offensive line understands, you know, when Soma is in there, you do see a little bit more of that, you know, just man-on-man, uh, you know, blow them out uh, off the line of scrimmage that we didn't see last year. That They didn't have confidence that when they needed that third and two that they could do it and get it. And uh, I think that's a, that's a positive development as well. All right, Dan. Well, let's jump into some of these questions about USC spring football. Um, let's uh, – yeah, let's see. Let's go first – we have a simple one. We'll start with that one. It's not a simple answer, but it's a simple question from Andrew. Who is the better-looking player, Player, Sua or Adoree? So we're talking about Sua Cravens or Adoree Jackson. You know, I think they're so, such different-looking players. Uh, uh, Sua looks, you know, when he, he, he lost some weight with a, a bout with the flu and got down to 210 and looked much more like a safety. But uh, when he's at, you know, going to be playing about 220, you know, you look at him and he's, you know, this sort of, you know, Adonis looking, you know, character. And the, the amazing thing about Adori, he's so not normal looking. He just, until he starts moving. And then I, I remember one of the first times when they do, they loosen up the whole team and they do them in lines and, and they just take one uh, uh, with a uh, kick. They do a kick ac- uh, across their opposite shoulder. And um, as they're walking, and that's just kind of loosen, loosen up their hip muscles and just, you know, just the general loosening up. And I'm noticing that, like, a Dory's kick is like a foot higher than everybody else's on the team. It didn't matter who you are or how big you are or whatever. 
he's got a set of athletic skills, uh, confidence that, that goes into it, uh, hands, uh, timing, ability to make plays in the air, all those things. And so you're looking at, at two different – they're both guys that can make plays on the ball. They're both guys that can close on the football in, at the last minute in ways in which you think, how did he get from here to there? Um, that's a big advantage in a game where, you know, the football really matters. Um, but they're both absolutely special in their own way. And, you know, two of the more special athletes in the country. I don't think there's any question they were in high school. They are now. Um, USC's job, I think, is just to uh, free those guys to be able to make, uh, you know, use of their, of their special talents on, on the football in space uh, you know, I wouldn't want to pick one over the other. I mean, it might be, uh, you know, you like the, this particular look. Adoree, you like the way Adoree looks when he's making a play in the air, in space. Uh, Sua might win the battle if you were saying, which one of these two guys looks better standing there? Uh, you might pick, you know, you might pick Sua, uh, you know, for that one. But, uh, but when they're making plays on the ball, with the ball, in space, um, they both got you know some really special, unique qualities. All right, thanks for that one, Andrew. We'll go to Melvin. Had a couple questions, Dan. His first one, um, he said, "What do you think will end up? Who do you think will end up as the starting tight end, uh, especially in view of the off the field problems with Dixon and Cope Fitzpatrick? If USC lacks depth at this position, do you think they will just go to using more?" Wideouts or not even use a tight end. Uh, yeah, I don't. I think trying to guess that one right now it would be just. They're just it'd be a, probably not very much value. Uh, um, they haven't used as much as a tight end in uh, in spring, which is you know makes sense to see what your options are. Um, I mean, I think they've got a number of ways to go there. I think Connor Spears though has been definitely. Running uh, number one, he's six six two forty. Uh, as Stark said, he's fast enough. Uh, he does catch the ball in the scene, catches it in a crowd. Uh, it doesn't look too big for him. He's you know transfer from Columbia. Kid has kind of lived all over the all over the world, uh, or at least he was born in Dublin, Ireland, and lived all over the all over the U.S. And it's kind of a you know a kid that just sort of seems to be able to rise to the occasion. Uh, whether Chris Wilson is, is in that, you know, picture or not, uh, it looks like, and, and with Jalen Fitzpatrick eligible again, and Tyler Pettit uh, coming in, you would guess, um, not knowing about Bryce Dixon, you would guess it's going to be by committee. And I do think that Sark has, has mentioned that at Washington, the one year they ran out of tight ends, they they went with two running backs and um, you know a fullback, and they tried to do some of the same things with the uh, you know blocking at the point of attack with the fullback, and they're throwing the ball to the fullback. I mean, uh, Sua caught a pass the other day on the fifth play that you know, when they do the five final plays that was the uh, gave the win to the offense. So um, uh, I think they're going to be experimenting with exactly how do they handle that, and. You know, if they have a sense of how the Dixon case is going to turn out, uh, they certainly haven't indicated as such, and I think it's it's probably not knowable now as to you know where he's going to be or how he's going to be. One would think he's not going to be there for spring at all, um, even though again they're not going to comment on it. So uh, so they're going to explore a lot of alternatives, but. Uh, I just think right now all you know is that they're going to try to do a lot of things and see uh, see which ones look the best to them right now. But you, you can't even know uh, all of those options because you don't really know who's going to be there. Uh, you know, will will Dixon be there? Will Wilson be there? How quickly uh, you know does the you know, freshman uh, try to step in, step up? Unknowable. Um, and then he had one other question for you, Dan. Uh, he says, during spring practice, have you noticed uh, or seen any distinct changes made by Justin Wilcox that was different from last year's defensive schemes and strategy? That's for Melvin. 
Yeah, there's no question. They're they're really playing a lot more press. They're they're uh, blitzing from different places. Uh, uh, more unexpected of the kind that you remember with uh, with Pete, and um, uh, where they're well timed and the, the kids seem comfortable doing them. Um, you know, you like. Uh, you know, it it looks like they become more of a playmaking, you know, have more of a playmaking philosophy on defense. Last year it looked like more they were just trying to hold on, not screw up, uh, not get embarrassed, not get deep deep, those kinds of things. This year looks like uh, they're going to try to figure out who are our playmakers and how can we uh, put them in position to make plays and uh, uh, can we be confident that we have enough athletes uh, who we can depend on, uh, you know, to take uh, to come up and play press coverage and take people out of the game and just one on one trust them that you can uh, you can do this. So yeah, we're seeing more of that. I'm seeing more of a you know confident Wilcox in his players and in his own maybe uh, ability to you know call a game and as, as Ryan. You know, documented last year, USC was is about about as far down on the list of teams that that would blitz or like to blitz or trusted to blitz as any team any team you know in the Power Five conferences, and uh, it doesn't seem to be the case now. All right, uh, let's move on to Tarek. Uh, he says in his lone start last season, Michael Hutchins left a lot to be desired. What have you seen from him this spring? And with the good things that Cam Smith is doing, do you see him being a dark horse to be the starting middle linebacker? I think Michael has made significant improvements. I think he knows he's playing. He um, he knows what his role is. Uh, and um, uh, he just looks like he's grown up. He just looks more comfortable out there. I mean, this is one of the benefits of not having, say, Anthony, you know, out there is, uh, you know, a guy like Michael gets uh, much more of a chance uh to play, you'll see him in there with uh, Lamar a lot, and uh, uh, I think he's, uh, you know, another reason to feel good about that, you know, that middle linebacker, you know, that inside linebacker, those two positions, just because uh, he looks like um, he's uh, he's ready to get, you know, to get the job. Now I'm encouraged from what I've seen about Michael um, the first two weeks. Yeah, and it, for me, Dan, when you watch him in the off season, he's a leader. Like he's been a leader out there. He'll you know, grab the clipboard. He's helping some of the younger guys, and it just seems like his head's in the right place. And then you, you know, we got to obviously got to see what he's doing on Saturdays. I think we'll get a lot more chances to see him this year. But uh, I think his his leadership out there has been really good, and someone that you know he's very he has a cerebral approach to the game and, and playing that position. Well, I think we always were waiting to see when that De La Salle background would kick in. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think there's no question. You know, you feel like those kids are coming from a different place. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, his time is, is now, I think he believes. And, um, and uh, I think we're seeing that. Um, Troy 75 had a question. Not, these guys aren't in the spring, but there's been a lot of talk about replacing Leonard Williams. And he said, how quickly do you see defensive linemen? Um, he's talking about Jacob Daniel, Rasheem Green, and Noah Jefferson making contributions on the defense, it seems that a major concern will be replacing Leonard Williams. Will these freshmen be able to help right away? That's from Troy75. That's going to be an interesting – I think that will be one of the more challenging things to do in August uh, because you'll have uh, three veterans coming back, Kenny Bigelow and Antoine Woods and um, Greg Townsend Jr., who I don't know if he's getting back this uh, this spring or not. But So you're going to – you know you're going to want to uh, you know bring those guys in. You're basically going with just the four: Cody Temple and Malik Thornton and uh, Claude Pilon and Delon Simmons this spring. So you're going to want to incorporate those guys. And I know you know the, the way it has always gone at USC is you really do want to give the young guys a chance. Uh, so I'll be interested to see how that all works because that's uh, you know that's like six guys that you've got to kind of work in. Uh, who weren't basically a part of the spring. And uh, I think you're, you're seeing them in the, the talk from the D-line guys all is the way you replace a Leonard Williams is 
you all you do it as a group you do it as a you know a combination effort and uh how that works if you've got guys that have been working all spring and working pretty well i mean i think if cody temple stays healthy he's a real viable option uh you know at the nose and uh, i think claude and, and delvon both realize this is it you know if they're going to go on and you know play at the next level they've got to you know show what they can do and and really step up this year and they know there's the opportunities there so how you incorporate those other seven guys uh you know with the uh, uh including the freshmen i don't know I, I mean i don't know exactly who's got the maturity you know um uh, to be able to maybe be the breakout guy in the freshman group and uh find a way into uh you know the rotation um i think that'll be probably the most un uh at this point i would say that one would be the most um difficult to predict how it's going to go in terms of personnel how that rotation is going to turn out but uh keep your eye on it um there was also uh last week during in the middle of the practices usc had their pro day got to see some of the former trojans perform and this is a question about andre walker so i thought it'd be appropriate since we're you know we got to see him uh run at the pro day earl in west la says is there a backstory about andre walker it looked like he had won the job back when he filled in superbly for the injured chad wheeler in the second half against utah after that game he never played again do you think the coaching staff opted to give the offensive line of the future more game experience working together did andre fall out of favor or did someone else or something else come into play. His performance against Utah seemed to merit more playing time, but that did not happen, and I'm curious to know why. We think maybe his performance against Utah was maybe more highly rated, uh, maybe from the outside than from the inside. I think there were assignment issues. I just think it was a, a sense of being on top of his game and being on top of the game and into the, you know, into the moment and all that, that, that I just don't think they, they felt, you know, was there. I mean, the thing with Andre, he always looked like, I mean, you know, he looked like the prototype, you know, college tackle going to the NFL guy, but um, they, uh, I think they just didn't have a sense that they could absolutely be certain of where, you know, Andre's head was on every play and in every practice. And, uh, and I don't think it was anything more than that. It wasn't, you know, and, you know, no personal or nothing like that. It's just uh, a matter of focus and, you know, concentration and uh, ability to, to feel like, you know, and if it's, you know, between a freshman and a, and a senior, uh, you would think you'd always give the, you know, the, you'd give it to the freshman. I mean, you'd just say, hey, this kid's got three more years. Um, and in, in the case of that left tackle is more dependable. So, so I think that's, you know, I wouldn't read too much into that. I think it was pretty much strictly performance-based and practice-based and, you know, um, classroom-based, all of that kind of thing uh, than anything. All right. Uh, Marcel and Diamond Bar had a question about the schedule. He wants to know, can you explain – uh, what goes into the selection of the non-conference opponents for USC other than Notre Dame? Is it recruitment, wins, or, or what? Well, it, and, and, <laughs> you know, it went one game. I mean, you'd like to have two home games every year, you know, and get you to the seven and five, which would be ideal. And it's harder in the Pac-12 because you play a nine-game conference schedule, so every other year you're playing four games, at home and five on the road in the Pac-12. So um, it'd be a lot easier uh, if you were the eight-game uh, SEC model. So, uh, and USC usually had a second game that you were pretty uh, happy about. So, example, for example, next year, that would have been the Texas A&M game. So USC would have been playing both Texas A&M and Notre Dame. And, um, and you got to get those you know, staggered so that, you know, you're not playing on the road at, a, say, a Texas or a Texas A&M the same year you're playing Notre Dame on the road. And, um, and then Texas A&M joins the SEC, 
whatever, four years ago and drops USC from the home-and-home game. So then USC's scrambling to get a second home game, and they only wanted one for a year. So now you're basically going to buy a game, and, uh, you know, that's where, you know, you end up with an Arkansas State and an Idaho in back-to-back, you know, opening games. Still, if you look at USC's three non-conference game next, next year, just going to Notre Dame probably gives you a tougher non-conference schedule than, you know, probably everybody in the SEC, uh, or at least 10, 10 teams in the SEC. It probably gives you a tougher non-conference schedule than most everybody in the, um, uh, in the, in the Pac-12, really. But, but I think USC was scrambling next year for, conf- for non-conference games because Texas A&M dropped them. But, uh, but USC only has, uh, you know, a margin of, uh, you know, they've got two games to deal with. And they're going to pick up Texas in a couple of years, uh, home and home. So that helps. But they, yeah, they haven't had as much luck. Uh, teams seem to be, if they're going to come to LA, more willing to play UCLA at the Rose Bowl uh, than USC at the Coliseum. Uh, I don't think there's, there's just even with you know UCLA having done you know better the last couple of years, they're still they're still you don't. You don't find teams that are that crazy about coming to the Coliseum to play USC. That's very true. That's very true. Um, we'll see. Yeah, people forget they they forget about Notre Dame, Dan. They just say, oh well, what besides Notre Dame? Well, Notre Dame's on the schedule every year. Um, so I think that's just a, with the nine conference games in Notre Dame, then you know you got ten good ones. And I don't mind if they try to sneak in a couple extra home games every once in a while. But they're they're still you know, better teams on the schedule and next year you got Alabama and stuff. So it's, I don't think the schedule for me is ever going to be that big of an issue as far as if USC wins the, if you're worried about what's the national perception and are they going to make the playoff? I think if USC wins the PAC 12, barring some crazy thing where they lose, you know, three times or something, they're going to, they're going to be making the playoff. Yeah. And they're still, you know, they've never, um, never scheduled down. They've never scheduled below, you know, the Division One. Um, and only three teams, UCLA and Notre Dame, are the only other two of all the uh, Division One teams that haven't done that. I noticed when they, they picked up a Central, was it Western Michigan, excuse me, uh, for one of those games in the future. And uh, it was the first time USC ever scheduled a Mid-American Conference team. Uh, which I, that surprises me, but, you know, a, a Mid-American Conference, pretty good conference. Um, what I would get worried about is something I, I think I threw it into the war room a couple of weeks ago about Tennessee. And at the end of each week, we get a little uh, update on college football around the country from the National Football Foundation. And they give you little, little blurbs about what's happening at different programs around the country. And the first blurb was East Tennessee State has resumed, is going to uh, start football. And tryouts are, you know, in a couple of weeks. And that was the announcement number one. Announcement number three was the University of Tennessee has scheduled East Tennessee State. Now, they have it, you know, in 2020 or whatever, 2018. 2018, I think it was. I'm thinking, this is a school, he hasn't even had a practice yet, and they're already on Tennessee's schedule. (laughs) That would worry me. I'm USC, and you're scheduling teams that haven't practiced yet because they don't have any players. That's not who you want to be scheduling. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you, as long as USC doesn't do that, I'm okay with it. Uh, interesting. All right. Well, here's, here's one from W. He said, one of your callers recently, he's talking about the callers on the podcast, said that Syracuse basketball, the Syracuse basketball coach was given similar penalties to what Pete Carroll would have been given if he stayed at USC. I thought there was nothing truly negative about Coach Carroll in the NCAA report. Plus, wasn't Chip Kelly already gone from Oregon when the penalties against him were given out? Of course, those penalties do not really amount to much once a coach has left the school. I am still amazed how many ESPN and Fox quote-unquote experts still say things like the penalties for USC paying their players or the house that was bought for Reggie's family, etc. I can understand fans being so ignorant or having a bias, but... Why are these "quote unquote" experts so misinformed? That's from W. You know, I think uh, one of the problems was they all bought into it at the time, and they and they willfully remained relatively ignorant because it would make them, 
you know, appear that they had absolutely nothing, you know, no, they were completely incorrect in their judgment of the USC case. I think most of them have come around now. They know the NCA framed USC. The penalties were ridiculous, that the NCA acted, you know, just terribly in, in the case. And uh, yet you will have, hear that thrown in because I think a lot of, a lot of it is, well, the NCA wouldn't have punished them the way they did, considering they're not punishing anybody for anything anymore, unless there was something really there. And the fact that USC chose over the last, you know, four and a half years not to really defend itself publicly, not to stand up for itself, uh, helps that assumption. You know, people think, well, what the heck? If our school would have been so unfairly treated, our people would have screamed to high heaven and would have gone crazy. And nobody at USC has said much of anything other than, you know, we'll try to do it, you know, right, you know, the next time. Uh, Make you, you know, if you're an outsider, you can say, well, you know, I've not heard USC scream about this or threaten about it or do anything. And uh, so there's other schools were threatening the NCA before they even got penalized. USC gets penalized so unfairly, and they don't even threaten them after they get penalized. So I think that helps people um, throw those charges out there because USC has done such a poor job of defending itself. And I think and even people that know what's going on, sometimes you just it kind of get lumped into things. I mean, Colin Cowherd from ESPN is a, a friend of the show. He's a you know closet USC fan. He knows what's going on, and I heard him going on a rant about – all this NCAA stuff the other day, and he talked about you know Reggie Bush and mentioned a booster, like get, you know, getting uh, his family getting money from a booster, which you know completely wasn't the it was like a wannabe agent, it wasn't a booster. So even people that know what's going on here, it's been so long, and you just kind of well, hear. I mean, and yeah. you have to know all the details. For example, the only way that guy was classified as a booster was the NCA changed the definition of booster yes. in a way that changed. They had, you know, said that this guy wasn't a booster. Then they changed it. So you have to know, like, all the details of the case to know that, wait a minute, this is the guy that hired more UCLA students or former UCLA players than USC players, but all of a sudden in the USC case he was a booster? You know, they, the NCA did so many things that, it's hard for outsiders to realize, no, that guy wasn't a booster. Right. I wanted to be, you know, Reggie's agent. And um, uh, in no way, shape, or form was he a USC booster. He had no connection to USC's program. The NCAA just defined him as that, and that was one of the many things that the NCAA did to rig the case. Just, yeah, you're right. Um we got okay, so we're gonna have uh, Patrick has a few things for you, and then we're gonna do our, our our favorite basketball caller, and we'll wrap up okay. the show that way. But Patrick had a few things. I'll read the first one. Let you comment on each one of these. Uh, he said, "I'm very sad to see the big cat go." He's talking about Leonard Williams. Seems to bring a fresh personality to football. He, more than anyone I can remember, seems to act like a quote unquote regular college student that is just great at football. He's a wonderful kid. Uh, what a break that he chose to come to USC. Good for Leonard. You know, good for USC. Uh, it's really neat to see those kids who, who, you know, got punished for things they didn't have anything to do with. And uh, they, you know, now that they're leaving, when you hear, you know, you talk to Nelson and Buck and, and Leonard, they so, you know, care for USC. And they so are, you know, happy that they were, you know, part of the USC community. And, and you know, we all probably should be just as happy about Leonard as Leonard was about USC. Uh, what a, you know, he's a one of, you know, one in a million. Uh, and I think he charmed everybody, like at the Combine or these NFL teams are like, is this for real? Is this kid this good a kid? Is this kid this, you know, yeah, he, that's who he really is. But, uh, but you don't see Leonard, you know, guys like Leonard come along very, very often. Uh, just, uh, just a treasure. And his second point was, wonder what your thoughts are on the Todd McNair case. Do we really want the stories to come out? I know it will damn the NCAA, but will there also be some shady stories that will come out that will reflect negative, excuse me, negative, negatively on USC? The only negative story I can see coming out on at USC is 
why the hell didn't you fight <laughs> this a little harder? Yep. Why didn't you fight to get those emails out yourself or get to see them yourself? That's the most negative. You know, why did you get, you know, not get the right advice, you know, four years ago in terms of what your options might be to get some of the sanctions back uh, uh, and, and to figure out exactly what the NCA did to you? Uh, and, and not give up your, uh, you know, any kind of negotiating position that you might have had to back the NCA down. That's the most negative thing I think that's going to come out. Let's face it, the NCA had anything that they thought they could use, they would have used it. I mean, they, they, you know, they've embarrassed themselves. I mean, when any of these details come out about what they did in the USC investigation and prosecution, they, you know, strained so hard and they did things so improperly and so sloppily, if they had any kind of slam dunk, you know, stuff on USC, they'd have used it. Unfortunately, they didn't have it, which is why they had to, you know, throw Todd McNair in, and then they realized, uh uh-oh, we probably can't do that, you know, there are for a number of reasons, um, and yet they still left it in the case. And uh, because they, you know, it would have been almost impossible, no matter what anybody says, if they couldn't have come up with a connection to someone at USC who knew anything, there's no way they could have, no matter how much they changed the rules and all the parameters about what you can and can't do, they couldn't have done to USC anything nearly what they did had they not had a connection to a member of the coaching staff. And, uh, and so, uh, if they had anything better than that, you can absolutely believe it was in there because they threw in stuff that, you know, that they were desperate. They spent four years on it, the longest investigation in NCAA history. They were so certain going into it that they were going to come up with just scads of stuff, uh, thinking, you know, if this were an SEC team, this were, a, you know, a, <clears throat> some of the, you know, old Southwest Conference-type teams, uh, to be as good as USC, they'd have had to cheat so badly. And so they just figured USC's got to be cheating. Then they get into the case and they go, uh-oh, we can't find anything. Then they ended up having to make stuff up. If they had anything, uh, they wouldn't have had to make stuff up. And so to me, that tells me that, you know, the only worries are USC's going to look bad for not having uh, defended itself more publicly and more uh, vigorously. No, I agree with you on that, Dan, but that is something that is a kind of, I don't know, it's a theory that's out there just because you'd think that, well, there's got to be a reason why the USC is not fighting back and there there's other bad things that the NCAA just kept the lid on and they didn't want it to get out and things like that. But man, like they did have to kind of, you know, there was fabrications or, you know, talking behind the scenes while this was all, all you know, all the emails that we want to see come out, all the, you know, the, the, nefarious business practices that the NCAA used. So that does make sense that if they, if they had more, I don't see why they wouldn't throw it in there. You know, there's no, there's no secret deal behind the scenes that we're not going to talk about all these other bad things that USC did because we don't want this to get out there, but we're going to punish you like you, like they're, you know, like we know. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to imagine there is not an email that says, man, we've got USC on this and this, and we've got evidence of this and this. But let's not use that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's try to tie them into a phone call that was from the wrong year made by the wrong person. And uh, after Reggie Bush was finished with his eligibility, yeah, let's, tie it. let's try to do that. And then we got this picture from a bar scene that God knows that, you know, whatever, uh, you know, still people will debate whether it's Photoshopped or not. But... No, there's no, I, there's no, we've got them on this or we've got them on that. And um, we'll just hold that back, you know, for what purpose? Why would they yeah. hold anything back? I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, you know, it just, there's, you know, and people say, well, everybody does this. Or yeah, I mean, is there something that, you know, somebody did that every other school in America does? Well, you know, would they be hiding, you know, would they say, um uh, you know, in a case that uh, uh, we're only going to punish USC for it, but everybody does it, and USC might be even forced to defend itself. 
And that was, I think, four years ago somebody started that out, that, well, there were some other things, and um, there aren't any other things now. Once those other things, once those were not part of the case, they're not part of the case. They're, if there was anything there, it's not there now. Because um, it, it's either part of the case or it's not part of the case. We're only talking about the case. We're not talking about... And, and the problem the NCA would have is if they came up with anything else now, they've so discredited themselves and their methods and the same people who would be involved in it, it wouldn't matter anyway. Nobody's going to believe them. So, so yeah, I think that was... That was a, a try, an attempt at explaining USC's failure to defend itself. There is another explanation uh, to USC's failure to defend itself, and it's not a good one for USC, but it's probably the correct one, and it's almost certainly the correct one. Uh, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to look like a, a football school. They didn't want to look like uh, a school that cared that much about, you know, even though Notre Dame would go to you know, the end of the earth to defend its football program, and that's never hurt Notre Dame's standing as a serious, you know, academic university. Uh, you know, I don't. I guess I would, I would tell you that, you know, North Carolina always wanted to act like they were a serious academic university, a, you know, a top 25 university, and look what, you know, what's happened there. And they've gone to the end of the earth to try to defend themselves about the bogus classes and all that. And, uh, you know, probably uh, in a way that they weren't the most honest about how they investigated all of that that went on at North Carolina, and yet nobody has, you know, they're, they're going to get shot down for, for what happened in athletics. But I don't think anybody has said this, you know, lessens North Carolina as an academic institution and why USC thought that would have made USC look like a less serious, you know, program, I don't know. I, I think they got some bad advice from people. Uh, one last one from Patrick. He said, I've asked this before, um, but it didn't get answered, so I want to ask again. Like, sorry about that, Patrick, but here you go. Instead of paying athletes, has the possibility of paying insurance policies for players an option? With the risk of injury, I'm sure many players opt to go pro before they are ready so they can guarantee – uh, get some guarantees, some support for their families. If they knew that they had some money coming, should they get injured, uh, maybe we could retain a few. Thanks for the great stuff, fellas. Patrick. Interesting thought. Um, the way the insurance policies now, the ones that ensure your value against the draft and <clears throat> uh, you know decreased earnings uh, are, and since it appears they don't want to pay on any of those policies, um, uh, I would say the whole question of insuring athletes is one that people are pretty hesitant about right now. Whether you could, you know, set up a generalized class of insurance, uh, and I don't know, you know, I guess it would, it would just be insurance against injury, but how would you define what exactly, I mean, you, what you would hope now is you're covered with all medical expenses and all, how you how you um, cover that in the future once they're out of school is a good question. And uh, it's probably an area somebody ought to take a look at. Is is there a way of kind of doing that? The problem the NCAA's got with that is uh, they have, you know, stated since the 1950s that uh, student athletes are not employees. So they, they didn't want to cover them with the workman's comp, for example, and all of that kind of thing because then they have to, uh, you know, admit that they were employees, and they fought like crazy not to uh, put the, you know, student athletes in a class of employees, and 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 what what the insurability situation is for an athlete. I mean, for example, could they give them all grants and let the uh, student athletes buy their own insurance? I don't know. As, as a cost of attendance, um, not sure how they ought to go about that. But I, I, I would tell you that's probably an area that everybody's going to be looking at uh, when they start, uh, you know, awarding, you know, four-year scholarships and uh, uh, paying kids the true cost of education, um, uh, something like that. I'm sure probably which should be investigated. And how would you do it? I don't know. But uh, 
but it's something to, you know something to think about. And I think it'd be really hard to do, Dan. I mean, you mentioned you know Marquise Lee is suing you know, Lloyd's of London over the, his policy not being paid. And when you're talking about insurance, you're talking you have to insure against something. You get a car insurance; it's it's insurance against uh, an accident. I mean, if you if you get an oil leak or you know your transmission goes, your insurance doesn't cover that. Whereas for a player, I mean, they could maybe they don't get drafted very high, or they maybe they don't get drafted at all. There's, I mean, I I think. To, to make it equip, you know, equatable to instead of paying a player or something, you, you pay for their insurance policy. The insurance policy is only going to work for, for very certain players. You know, it's going to be a guy, it's got to be a surefire guy that if he comes back and gets injured, he's not able to, you know, make that kind of living in the NFL. I just don't think that would, even in the situation, if you could do that, I don't think it would be addressing enough of the problem because it really only works for a handful of players every year. Yeah, the thing I was thinking is, um, was was Patrick talking about the possibility of a, uh, you know, a uh, a team wide insurance plan which would insure guys against say future medical expenses uh, for injuries or you know whatever happens to them in college, so that if those stay with them for the rest of their life, for example, or if they're you know medical expenses that come up once they're out of college and that that you could still be covered for those, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, and this is a bad analogy probably, but, um, you know, for guys that, you know, um, in the service who suffer, you know, service connected disabilities that they have, you know, lifetime, lifetime care, uh, would that be something that, 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 you know, to be fair to these guys, because you don't know what happens to kids, you know, they get the surgery done or they get, you know, this and that done, but, if they have a lifetime of, of some medical, you know, issues, um, how do they, how do they take care of this? Uh, that would be maybe something that they could take a look at. It would seem where you don't have to evaluate based on how good they, you know, were, what their future earnings are going to be or anything. Just more like a basic kind of a lifetime insurance policy against something that might happen while you're in college. All right, and then we got one last uh, topic, uh, USC hoops. Uh, of course, USC had an upset win over Arizona State in the Pac-12 tournament and then uh, got beat pretty badly by UCLA, um, who actually did, and did end up making the uh, NCAA tournament. Who knows, if USC was able to win that game, maybe that keeps US, UCLA uh, out of the NCAA tournament. But uh, And speaking of, we do have a really cool scout, uh, brand-new scout uh, tournament game. If you go to uscfootball.com, you can check it out. But there's a... You get a mulligan. You get to play week by week. So there's prizes after every week. So if you pick a team that loses in the first round, it's okay. You can come back next week and you get to start from from scratch. So it should be interesting. But this is specifically about USC basketball, Dan. And I'll play uh, I'll, I'll play the voicemail for you right now. This is Richard, <clears throat> the USC basketball fan. Well, I was almost lulled into thinking that Opie could actually coach after uh, SC beat Arizona State, but sadly. Uh, they were blown away by the Bruins, and I'm wondering what Dan's comments are as we go into next year. As I mentioned, uh, if it starts off the way it ended, uh, they have to have something in place. And not only is Opie going to be on the hot seat, I would think Hayden would be too as far as the coaching is concerned. So, Dan, I would love to hear your comments. Appreciate the show, and fight on. Bye. Yeah, I'm actually working on a I'm, – I'm more – involved with the NCAA basketball tournament this year for some reason, and I don't know why. Uh, but it, 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 the sad thing here is if you're a USC basketball fan, in this week when everybody gets excited about the NCAA tournament, I didn't realize that when you look at the numbers that $9 billion uh, of, of gambling activity uh, compared to, say, $4 billion for the Super Bowl, or that uh, you know the the total dollars, uh, uh, broadcast dollars uh, on the NCAA tournament are more than on the Super Bowl and, and all of those things. And if you're a USC basketball fan, you feel completely disconnected from all of that. And that you know there's no reason for that. I mean, here you are, you know, you're in a town that's without a doubt produces the most high school basketball or you know college basketball talent out of the high school program. I mean, you can't turn on a game without a kid from Los Angeles doing this or doing that, and NBA or, or college. And here's USC just sitting here 
totally on the sidelines for even the year they got to go and, and play in the play-in game with Kevin O'Neill. USC was still on the sidelines, even with a team that was probably better than VCU. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, one more year of totally on the sidelines. Somebody told me that it was in Las Vegas that the USC kids thought they'd won the tournament when they beat Arizona State and uh, didn't, you know, didn't realize that there'd be another game and you're playing the third game of the year against your arch rivals and you don't show up ready to play. Uh, and then somebody else said, ah, there's just no way they match up. You can't guard that. You know, USC can't guard that UCLA team. And I'm thinking, yeah, that UCLA team that scored, what, seven points in the first half against Kentucky, that real athletic UCLA team. I mean, the lack of effort on defense and the lack of kind of a, an ability to even understand what you have to do to defend a UCLA, for example, uh, gives you worry. I mean, there's, there's real worry. I mean, you can't brag about him in the 12th, number 12 recruiting class in the country in October and then say, you know, in December, January, February, March, we're just not big enough, strong enough, mature enough, good enough. You know, we're not any better now than we were four months ago. And um, it's, it's a worry. Um, I, I, you know, there are people like, I, you look at Oregon and Oregon State, and you think, uh, you know, basically Oregon got most of their team just wiped out with, you know, various kinds of scandals at the end of the year. And, and you know, they show up because they got a coach who can coach, and uh, they don't let that stop them. And, uh I just think coaching really matters in college basketball. And um, I think USC needed a quicker turnaround than they've developed. I mean, you know, you can say, well, it's going to take a long time. USC can't afford for it to take a long time because of where it was and all the previous mistakes uh, and the allowing Kevin O'Neill to stay, uh, you know, at least a couple of years longer than he should have been allowed to stay. And um, which is why you probably don't, start out from scratch, but that's what USC, you know, tried to do. Last year was a complete wipeout. They made all the wrong decisions with the transfers. And this year we're going to build with, you know, recruits. And I don't know that those recruits are playing at a higher level, you know, maybe, you know, Elijah Stewart, whatever, but, but game for game for game, you don't see that. You don't see a sense of this is who we are. This is how we win games at USC. And so are they going to start from scratch again next year? And are they going to get stronger? I mean, you know, you can say, well, these kids are still weak and they need a lot of weight room work and all that, but you recruited them a year ago. What have they been doing, you know, in that year, you know, since then? And uh, they just need a whole lot of things to start going right here. And, um, uh, and, and we're going to, you know, we don't want a rerun of, of this year, next year. Um, but is there anything to say there's a lot of confidence that that won't happen? No, I don't think we, based on the way, you know, the season ended, uh, you know, I don't think there's any confidence level that they'll figure it out. Uh, you wish they would. I like Andy, you know, personally, good guy, like the kids, but, uh, they shouldn't be where they are. This team should have been a more more productive this year and been more competitive and uh, in more games and figured out ways at the end to win more games. And they didn't do any of that. And um, we wanted to feel like going out of this season, okay, this is something to build on. But I don't know that you look at this year and see elements that you say, well, we can build on this. And so I don't know where that leaves uh, don't know where that leaves USC at this point in time, but it's in a bad place. Uh, it shouldn't be with that building and where USC is in a, you know, in and in, in what really is a basketball town now. Uh, they shouldn't be 11th in attendance in the Pac-12 with that new building. Much more convenient place to get to than Poly, for, for example, for evening games, and yet, um, you know, drawing, you know, a little over 3,000 people is uh, – is not the way to go. 
All right. Well, Dan, we appreciate it. We knocked out an hour show, just the two of us. So great stuff. We, uh, we've got to cover a lot of different topics, so it's, uh, it's good to see. We'll uh, the week off for spring break. We don't take the week off. USCfootball.com will still have a bunch of content up there, but they'll be back again next week and stuff like that. So thanks again. Make sure you send in your questions. Any kind of spring break questions you have, you can send them to USCfootball.com, podcast at USCfootball.com. And thanks again, Dan, for coming on the show. Hey, and if you are looking for something this spring, uh, go check out the USC baseball team. Uh, definitely worth, uh, you know, worth a look. Uh, they do it the right way. You know, uh, they, you know, they've done a you know, great job of building the program. Uh, Coach Hobbs in the third year, and uh, um, they're fun to watch. And um, college baseball is a great sport. And now that, you know, the, the Trojans look like they're back in business, uh, you know, get out there and, and see some games, and, uh, and I think you'll really enjoy yourself. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, Dan. Uh, Thanks again. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.